This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And this morning we're going to talk about imitating Jesus and why that is so, so important. Now I'm going to start off with, with a story. And I brought uh, some objects with me. I didn't know the platform was going to be here. So if I fall back, I'll be all right. All right. So I brought some Cheerios. We'll talk about this in a minute. So when my wife and I were first married, um, a lot of times we would go to the grocery store together. Now, it doesn't happen nowadays. We've got too much going on. Usually it's hard enough just to get one to the store uh, to get the groceries for the week and, and to get back home. Uh, but we used to go together before we had kids. And uh, we would go once a month. Um, we got paid once a month. I always like getting paid once a month. That way you know what you got to use for the rest of the month. When it runs out, it runs out. And you got to get creative. So we went to the store um, one uh, time, and we were going down, putting things in the cart. And um, I remember putting uh, a few things in there. And of course, she's taking them out as I'm putting them in. You know how it goes, right? And we came around to the cereal aisle. Now, if you don't know my wife, uh, you don't know this, but she loves Cheerios. Um, Cheerios is a, is a, a cereal, um, and she loves it. I like Honey Nut Cheerios, unless I just put sugar on the Cheerios, then it makes it Honey Nut Cheerios, right? So she likes uh, Cheerios. So for a while, um, she ate Cheerios every day. Uh, you know how you go through phases where you eat something for a long time, then you switch to something else, and uh, she'd eaten Cheerios for the longest time. Every morning for breakfast, you know, a good healthy breakfast, I guess. Cheerios. And so one day we were in the grocery store, um, we were going down through the aisles, and we turned uh, into the cereal aisle, and I went to grab, you know, the Cheerios box. And she's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want Cheerios this time, okay? Uh, we want something different. She's like, yes, yes. And then, of course, you know how it is. You're trying to be frugal, trying to save money, trying to do its best. You know, she said, um, as I was talking to her about the story to make sure I had all the details right, she's like, I was trying to save money. So it makes it look like I was just throwing money out, you know. <laughs> but she says, I was trying to save money. And so what, I decided, what she decided to do is she wanted the generic version of Cheerios, okay? Now, I went to the store, uh, to Kroger and to Food Fair, and I couldn't find the generic for the Cheerios that we had in the store that day. In the store that day, we had Tastios. Okay, Tastios. I couldn't find it, so I found something that's Honey Nut. This is called Honey Nut Scooters. Okay, <laughs> Honey Nut Scooters. All right. Now listen. I don't want to offend. If you like imitation cereal, then that that's that's good. Okay. So she put the imitation cereal in her bin. She's like, it's cheaper. You know, it's bigger, you save a lot more money, you get more, you know, it's like going to Sam's, instead of buying one pound, you buy 500 pounds. <laughs> you'll never eat the 500 pounds of cereal, but you'll still buy it because it's a better deal. And so she put it in the cart, and we go home. And the next day, she gets it out, and uh, she starts pouring milk, and she starts scooping a bowl. And I'm over there on the other side of the table, I don't remember what I was eating, probably a bowl of oatmeal or something, I'm trying to be healthy, you know. And, then, and she starts eating it, and I'm just kind of, I'm not trying to stare, but I am staring. You know how that works where you're trying to watch somebody, but you're trying not to watch them, but you are watching them. You're staring at them. 
I was doing that to see how she was going to respond, you know, to the cereal. And so, you know, one bite in and two bites. And then she took a third bite, and she was, she was, she was being really strong. She was being really strong. She, and you know that look when you eat something, and you're like, oh, this is great. Your kids make you something, and they put all the wrong ingredients in it. And you eat it with a smile, thinking, man, this is horrible, but I love this. And she was doing the same thing. Until eventually, after four or five bites, she pushed it forward and says, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. I just can't do the tastiers. I just can't. It's not, it's not worth it. Now, as far as the Schaefer household goes, tastios have never darkened our door <laughs> since that day. We only eat Cheerios. Now, by the way, if you like imitation cereal, then there's a pack up here for you to have later on. <laughs> you know, I remember telling her as she put it in the cart, I said, listen, I said, there are some things you buy off-brand and there are some things you don't buy off-brand. You just don't do it. It's not worth it. And so it is the same for me, at least with cereals. And by the way, as I was going down through the cereal aisle, man, I didn't realize how many different kinds of cereals there are. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts has their own cereal. I mean, Chips Ahoy. Where was that when I was a kid? You know, has their own cereal. Imitation is not solely limited, however, to a grocery store aisle or a grocery store shelf. Imitation is all around us. And as I watch a high school basketball game, you know, I see players imitate professional athletes. I see um, imitate their dress, their words, sometimes even their moves, sometimes. The way that Hollywood dresses and acts and thinks and talks and lives becomes a heavy influence on millions of people all over the globe. And, and, and they just want to imitate them. They want to do what they did. Now, if you're a parent... If you're a parent, then you likely know all about imitation because you see it firsthand. You see firsthand how well, oh man, how well, right, your children are able to imitate you. And it's not the good things they tend to imitate, is it? It's the bad things. And whether we like it or not, someone is watching what we do. And of course, with the technology we have available today, they're likely listening as well. I mean, have you ever found yourself talking to maybe it's your spouse or a friend about something that you want to look at buying, a uh, purchase of some kind? And then moments later, you open up your social media and you find advertisements all over the place for what you were just talking about. Or have you, have you ever noticed how easily kids like to imitate what their parents say, especially in those moments of frustration or anger? And it's a fact. We're being watched by someone. But the question we need to ask today is that who are we imitating? Because the heart of the matter is that if we are imitating the wrong person, then everyone who is watching us is in danger of also imitating that person as well. And I think this is a serious matter sometimes that we often uh, don't dig into. We say, oh, this is simple. Yeah, I know. Don't imitate evil. Imitate good. I get it. But sometimes we need to stop and think about this. How can you say to someone who's imitating you, they should know better? How can you say that, let alone explain that to a five-year-old who has no idea? So it's absolutely imperative that we imitate the right person. And if there is anybody in Scripture that we should imitate, it's obviously Jesus. But if there's anyone who would know how to imitate Jesus, 
You think it would be his 12 disciples or his 12 apostles that followed him for nearly three, three and a half years. They would have the best insights, don't you think, on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to imitate him. I mean, he poured his life into them. So look with me this morning in Matthew chapter 20, and look at this short account here, starting in verse, uh, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 20. Listen to what it says. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will deliver him over, excuse me, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. This is the final trip. I'm going to stop there. This is the final trip to Jerusalem in the life of Jesus and his followers, okay? So this is it. So the very next chapter in your Bible, Matthew chapter 20, starts the Passion Week. That starts the triumphal entry. Uh, we celebrate that every year, and it's called Palm Sunday because of the palm branches they tossed before the feet of Jesus, okay? So this is right before the Passion Week, okay? And so right before Jesus' most difficult week on earth, he takes his followers aside, and he tells them systematically what's going to happen. In advance, prophetic, if you want to say it, he tells them exactly what's going to happen. He predicts their future visit to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has predicted his passion before. This isn't the first time he said that this is going to happen. In fact, this is his third and his final time. And in his prediction, he's more specific, not generic. He's more specific than ever giving a preview of what's going to happen. And what he says in these verses happen on later in greater detail in the book of Matthew. The text says here that he will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. Well, that happens later on in chapter 26 of Matthew. He will be condemned to death. That also happens later on in chapter 26 of Matthew. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. That happens later on in Matthew chapter 27. He'll be mocked, chapter 27. He'll be flogged or scourged, chapter 27. He'll be crucified at the end of chapter 27. And he's going to be raised again on the third day, chapter 28. So Christ predicts these passion events here in the text in the specific detail in which they happen later on in the book of Matthew. He just talks about them and explains them a little bit more. He did this for his followers before, beforehand. They knew exactly what was going to happen when they got into Jerusalem? They were expressly told, and, and look at how they respond. They're told this is going to happen, this is the detail, and look at what they say. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? What, what would you like? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand... And on my left is not mine to give, 
but it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. So what Jesus tells them about the passion, about his upcoming visit to Jerusalem, it goes in one ear and goes out the other. It's as if they completely tossed it aside. Despite his predictions, James and John, it's the mother and their mother, have only one thing on their mind. We want status, we want privilege, and we want power in the coming kingdom. That's the only thing that we want. Have they learned nothing from the past three and a half years with Christ? Now, before you write off their request and say, oh, that's ludicrous, it's really not that ludicrous. Because in chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 28, a chapter earlier, Jesus did, in fact, tell his apostles, his 12, that when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, they will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So their request is not out of the ordinary. It's not out of left field. And we can also add to this request if we were to go to the parallel count of what happens here in Matthew 20, which is in Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. And it tells us this. It tells us because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So the apostles thought that once they got to Jerusalem, Jesus was going to somehow inaugurate the kingdom right there on the spot. This is the same kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one that the Jewish people were constantly, constantly looking for. Now today we have the benefit of having all of God's word, and we know that that kingdom is still yet future. Jesus' physical reign on earth is going to happen during that millennial kingdom. But they didn't have that benefit. In the minds of these apostles, they thought it was coming next week. And so the request was really to establish the pecking order before the kingdom was inaugurated. And James and John wanted to be at the top of the pecking order. Now, many of you know that I have chickens. And some of you have even eaten the bounties of having chickens, the eggs, the fresh eggs. There's nothing... Go down in the morning sometimes and get fresh eggs. And just, that's just really good. It's better than cereal. <laughs> but over the years, I've learned a lot about chickens. And, and the idea of the pecking order is very significant to chickens. I remember the first time that I had to introduce a few new chickens who were older into an older flock as well. And I took two of them at first. And I introduced them to the other six. And I remember so vividly, I took them and I opened up the gate between the two pens and I let them in. And the other six chickens and the two new ones were here. And as soon as I let those two new ones in, everybody in the pen just stopped. I mean, it was like we were playing the game statue and seeing how still we could be. And I was standing there because I was, didn't know what was going to go down. You know, it's like a fight or something. And they just stopped literally for 10 seconds. I mean, 10 long. It was probably five seconds, but you know how it seems long. But they just stood still. They didn't move. They just stared like a staring contest. And after a while, after about the 10 seconds were over, the, the older pecking order, the older top female, the top hen, she came over to the other two new ones, and guess what she started doing? She started pecking at them, pecking at them, pecking at them, okay, to tell them, I'm boss here. I'm boss. I'm boss. You're not. You're not. Now, the thing of the pecking order is 
once it's established, it's not permanent. It's always temporary. There's always someone getting bigger and stronger, especially after they molt and get bigger and stronger. There's always someone wanting to challenge the pecking order. And if you go down on a watch for any period of time, you'll see it. They're constantly challenging that pecking order. It sounds exactly like what was going on here. James and John here wanted to be at the top of the pecking order so badly that they did whatever it took. And you know what they did? They asked their mom. <laughs> right? They asked their mom, says, hey, mom, mom, can you, can you go ask Jesus for this for us? Can you go, can you do this? You know you've done that before, if you're honest with yourselves. But they would do whatever it takes to get to the top of the pecking order. And listen to what Jesus does. Jesus answers their request about being leaders in the kingdom to the right and the left of Jesus. Jesus answers their request in verse 22 in a typical Jesus fashion with another question. Don't you hate it when teachers do that? Ask a question with another question. Look at verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now, cup was a common Old Testament metaphor for suffering. You see, what the disciples and their mother failed to recognize is that the cross must precede the crown. The cross must come first. Jesus told them in the Passion here three verses earlier that this is the way it was going to happen. The cross has got to come before the crown. To share the crown, they would also have to, what, share the cross. Of course, these disciples are not going to go through the suffering and agony that Jesus did on the cross, but they will experience persecution and rejection for their faith. They will experience that type of suffering. And that's the same question sometimes we're confronted with today. If you're a follower of Christ, then you know that suffering is attached to the Christian life. And if you are imitating Christ, then you know what suffering is all about. You felt it firsthand. Now, I'm not speaking when I use the term suffering. I'm not speaking of the aches and the pains that we have when we get up in the morning. You know, the aches and the pains that we experience from our human bodies, the aches and pains that we experience for living in a, in a sin-cursed world. I'm not talking about that. Suffering means being treated wrongly because you're a believer in Christ. And it may not be direct. It may be indirect. And when that happens, don't miss the benefit of it. Don't try to avoid it. Because in suffering, you get a small glimpse into feeling what Jesus felt like as he suffered. Suffering has the potential, if you let it, suffering has the potential to draw you closer to Christ, if you let it. But a lot of us are scared to, and a lot of us won't. Now, James and John here, they're all in. They say, yes, we are able, Jesus. We are able. If it means sitting at your right hand and at your left hand, we will do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter what it is. Down to the very, very last detail. There's a story about President Calvin Coolidge who invited some of his friends from his hometown uh, to dinner at the White House. And since they didn't know how to behave on such an occasion, they thought the best policy would be just to do what the president did. So they decided to imitate everything he did. So the time came for serving coffee, and the president poured his coffee into a, a saucer, and the people, they did the same thing. 
The next step was the president to pour some milk and add a little sugar to the coffee and the saucer, and people did the same thing. They thought for sure the next step would be for the president to take the saucer with the coffee and, you know, begin sipping it. But the president didn't do so. He leaned over and placed the saucer on the floor, and he called the cat. (laughs) So sometimes, sometimes imitating here in this case, (laughs) you have to be careful. And, and, And there is a temptation in our world today to imitate what others do. The only person that we need to be imitating is Jesus. Now, Jesus responds, telling James and John that they indeed will, so, will suffer you know, for the cause of Christ. But to the original question, he is not able to grant the request. Jesus says the Father has already decided who will sit on his right hand and on his left hand. They're missing the point of what it means to imitate Jesus. Surely the other ten disciples knew better, right? Surely the other ten knew better. I mean, this is just a, a case of two bad apples. Remember back in the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, when he, uh, Moses sent 12 spies to spy out the land, and they took 40 days and they spied out the land, and they brought back a report to Josh, or excuse me, to Moses and to the whole people. And two of those, Joshua and Caleb, they brought back the good report. But there were the other 10 who brought back the bad report. Surely, in this case, it's just flopped. Maybe you have two bad apples and 10 good ones. Maybe. But look at what the text says. Verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now, displeased is kind of a soft word. It could mean indignant. It could mean anger. It could mean jealousy. The fact that the other ten disciples were angered at James and John demonstrates that they were no different than their two brothers. They all wanted first place. And the spiritual attitude of the ten was not any better than that of the two. How easy is it to condemn in others what we excuse in ourselves? You know, for three and a half years, these disciples were everywhere with Christ. Everywhere. And Christ was pouring into them all that he possibly could. He used every moment. He used every miracle. He used every, uh, every opportunity he had to teach them what it means to follow him. And you would think that after three and a half years, even Jesus' 12 closest friends would understand that following him is about sacrifice and service and humility, not about position, not about power, not about greatness. But they didn't. And after realizing that the entire group needs a reminder, Jesus does the Jesus thing. He he calls them together for a teaching moment. And we shouldn't miss what Jesus doesn't do. Even though the attitude of these 12 must have caused Jesus frustration at times, must have caused him uh, any number of things at times, in spite of all the similar lessons he might have taught, he still reacts very gently. He could have said, don't you guys know any better? I've taught you this for three and a half years. What's wrong with you guys? But he doesn't. He deals with them gently. He is truly a shepherd who loves his sheep. And aren't you glad that God deals gently with us when we have trouble applying the word of God to our lives? 
when we have trouble doing the same thing every single day, God deals with us gently. Sometimes he needs to get us back in line. But he deals with us gently like a shepherd. And so Jesus' moment of instruction with his disciples, it centers on this contrast. He wants to show them what's wrong. And the best way to teach, a lot of times, is to compare and contrast. You ever hate those essays your teachers used to make you do? Compare and contrast things. There's a reason for it. Look at verse 25, 26, and 27. Look at the comparisons he makes. Verse 25 says this, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now, from a negative perspective, we should not imitate Gentile rulers. But from a positive perspective, we should imitate Christ. That's what Jesus was trying to say. Now, since the inception of government, it seems to be about who you know, all about doing whatever it takes to climb the ladder to promotion and success. Men and women can spend all their energies in order to get to the top, and having arrived at the top, having arrived at the peak, they cause all others to feel the weight of their authority. And so those in power tend to, what he says, lord it over them. Those in power have a tendency to lord their authority over others. In other words, their rule is oppressive. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't criticize the abuse of power in the ranks of government. He could have, but he doesn't. Rather, he simply explains that the power structure that exists in the world today should not be what the disciples imitate. He says it quite directly. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. And quite frankly, it shall not be so among any Christian, among any believer in Christ. It shall not be so. That spirit is not what Christians should imitate. Greatness is not acquired by being oppressive. Greatness is acquired by having a servant's heart. But the disciples were acting like the rest of the world. They wanted the prestigious positions. They wanted to be in places of influence. What's so bad about simply wanting to be a servant? I mean, honestly, think about it. What is so bad about just wanting to be a servant of Christ? There's nothing wrong with that. What's so bad about that? Jesus spent three and a half years trying to teach his disciples to imitate him. And imitating is all about serving others. But the disciples, just like us, we struggle with it. We struggle with sin. We struggle with self. And it's a daily chore to keep our eyes focused on Christ. Now, there's no better example of a servant than Jesus. He's obviously the most important point in this text. And look at what he says in verse 28. He compares it to us. He compares it to himself. Verse 28 Famous verse. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Messiah, Jesus had every right to expect service from others. He had every right. But instead, he chose to serve others. 
And, and he is a supreme example of laying down his life in service for others. The word ransom in your text, it would make a first century audience think of the price paid to buy a slave's freedom. It's a purchase price. It's a ransom. Jesus would buy our freedom by paying the price for our sins because the price of our sins was his life. And Jesus, by the way, he willingly, he willingly paid the price. Being an imitator of Christ means being a servant. It does. And Jesus' willingness to humble himself to the point of life as a ransom for many must be imitated by the 12. And by extension, it has to be imitated by us. To be clear, Christ's own sacrifice is unique. It alone has atoning value, and consequently, it cannot be duplicated. However, in our own small degree, every believer by God's grace must show that love for others. Now, can we meditate for a second on verse 28? Because I don't want to pass it up. I know we read it and we looked at it already, but let's just meditate on it. Look at these phrases with me. It says, For the Son of Man came not to be served. And that's the very opposite of what James and John wanted. They wanted to be viewed as leaders at the top, the ones who would be served by others. Rather, Christ says, the Son of Man came to serve others. Jesus sought out the lowly path of service. All Jesus wanted to do was follow the Father's plan. That's all that he wanted to do. All Jesus wanted to do was get, along, get alone with God on the mountaintop. Remember the times he tries to get away, but the disciples go and find him and say, Jesus, what are you doing praying on the mountaintop? There's people down below that need your healing, come down, heal them so you can be prestigious and powerful and so everybody can know that you're the Messiah. The disciples wanted the Father's plan to be this great ushering in of the kingdom in Jerusalem. We're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. The kingdom's getting ready to start. We need to make sure we're in our positions of authority so there won't be any question when he inaugurates. Clearly, 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 they're missing the point. Clearly, they're having trouble imitating Jesus. And we do too. Then it says, the Son of Man also came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the crowning attribute of a servant is selflessness. And the most selfless part of Jesus' crucifixion was that he went to the cross willingly. was the Father's plan. He followed through. He wasn't coerced or forced. He willingly laid his life down as a substitute for you and for me. Now, I can't help feel the loneliness that Jesus must have felt. I mean, he poured his life into these 12 disciples. And at his most vulnerable moment, when he's explaining what's going to happen in Jerusalem, how he's going to suffer, how he's going to be tried falsely, how he's going to be flogged. Flogged means being hit by a club or a baseball bat. How he's going to be crucified. 
He tells them all these things, all these details, and all they're concerned about is themselves. And all they're concerned about is the power and prestige and positions that are going to come in this future kingdom. And it seems that Jesus' lonely road to the cross started before the Passion Week ever, ever began. Remember later on, it's James and John, the same two here, who when Jesus is in the garden praying, sweat drops of blood, it's James and John who were asleep. They're probably doing the same things that you and I would do. They're asleep. And what of Peter? Peter later abandons Jesus as well. The inner circle, Peter, James, and John, all abandoned Jesus because when it came down to it, they just weren't willing to imitate Christ. They just weren't willing to imitate being a servant. So I guess it's time to lay the question before us today. Are we willing to imitate Christ? I heard that the uh, halftime show of the big game tonight is going to be some retro 90s. And I have a feeling some of you parents of my age might do some imitating yourself tonight, <laughs> right? Imitating Christ means being a humble servant. And a servant is one who is selfless. A servant, everything a servant does is in the name of loving one another. Even though we act just like the 12 disciples, Jesus gave his life in selfless service to us. Now, that's love. And, and what more can we do to imitate Christ? I guarantee that every person here in this room, you're not imitating Christ enough, myself included. There's always more. There's always more that we can do. So let's do better than James and John and their mother. Let's remember that success in this life is how well we imitate Christ. That's the measure of success. Remember the phrase that we all say when we get to heaven, well done, thou good and faithful what? CEO? <laughs> no. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Jesus' measure of greatness is in how well we serve. So let me give you this last statement and we're finished. Let's stop imitating everything else but Jesus and start imitating nothing else but Jesus. That needs to be how we leave today.